Welcome to today's episode of Lead This, a co-hosted interview-style podcast built for leaders and aspiring leaders who need practical help and encouragement for the challenges they face. Led by career coach Lisa Adams and Dr. Seth Stone, leadership development expert, together they bring you engaging guests and thought-provoking leadership discussions. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Well, hello, everyone. This is Lisa Adams, and I'm here with my co-host, Seth Stone. Hello, everyone. And we have with us today, Rich Kidd. Rich brings a diversity of leadership experience to the Dingman Company that spans from the business world, across the church community, and into Christian higher education. For five years, Rich served at Regent University as Director of Campus Ministries and Adjunct Faculty. Before that, Rich had been a Vice President of Operations of a multi-site, high-end retail jewelry business. There, he gave leadership in brand management, supply chain, and vendor management and sales training. Rich is also an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And Rich comes to us um, from the search, executive search area with Dingman Company. And we want to welcome Rich and thank you so much for being on with uh, Seth and I today. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Rich, yeah, thanks for thanks for being on today. So let's jump right into it. I yeah. think we got a, a a bunch of stuff to talk about. I mean, we just heard you you've kind of you've done a lot of different stuff, which is which is cool. So, you know, going beyond your bio, tell us a little bit more about yourself and and what you're doing now, and mm-hmm. but but perhaps a little bit maybe of your story and how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Seth. I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'm not sure if somewhere along the the way I had a vocational counselor who was uh, ADD or something. Uh, <laughs> But I, I, I've done several things, as you mentioned, and I, uh, I think that the thing that unifies all of those is I, I do have a desire to serve others. Servant leadership is, is very important uh, to me, and it's important to me that I'm in an organization that's on mission, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's been something that's very important to me from, from the beginning. Uh, I started off uh, in, uh, the church world. And so I've, I guess I've done everything from being a senior pastor to a janitor in a local church. And there's many similarities between those two roles. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, had opportunity to enter into, uh, the, the business world. And some people see those things as mutually exclusive and I don't, mm-hmm. um, I, I see, uh, the business world is a sacred opportunity to serve our our customers and and to to establish positive, long, healthy relationships. The same as you might in a in a nonprofit organization. Um, my my wife, of course, enjoyed life in the diamond business a little bit more. I will admit, but uh, there were lots of uh, perks for her uh, when I sold jewelry. But uh, she. Um, <laughs> Also enjoys uh, the the passion. She's a servant as well, and so uh, in the nonprofit world, uh, it, it's it's been a great fit uh, building leaders. So mm, um, mm-hmm. my story is 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 one of service. I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's 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 good. I, a couple things you you yeah. mentioned there. I, I got to go back to here. Diamond real, business real, sounds real great quick. to me, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's going to sound more Girl's appealing to you. Friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> love them. Okay. Um, <laughs> So you talked about, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, being a servant leader, yeah. but also being involved uh, with an organization that's on mission. I think we hear people say that a lot, but in your, if you could kind of frame that up for us, I yeah. think that's an important thing to hit on quick. What does it look like when an organization is actually on mission? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, 
I think that people and, you know, I talk to people across all walks of life that they, they want their work to matter. They, they have a sense that they were created for a purpose. And uh, especially millennials today are um, making choices about their life and their lifestyle based on being part of a, a work that is significant. And so it's not enough to, to merely have a profit motive, although I'm of the belief that if you are serving others well, there there will be a profit because you're adding value to your community. But people want to, to matter. They, they mm-hmm. feel that they have significance, that they have gifts, and they want to be challenged in that. And so I saw that in the in the church world where I challenge people to be more than just a pew potato, just sitting there uh, putting down roots, but uh, to, to really get involved and to not just get involved in areas that are already uh, part of the church community, but to, to do something they were passionate about mm-hmm. and not just to see it as a uh, uh, a spectator sport. You know, we Americans love our football. Maybe you've been watching the NFL draft, but it's the problem with many churches is that there's 70,000 people in desperate need of exercise watching 24 men uh, desperately in need of a rest. And that's sort of the way most <laughs> churches work. It's true. Be- because everybody just sits around and watches. And so I try to encourage people uh, to get involved. That's really Very. well said. I never quite heard that analogy before, but it is a. It's very true. It's a fitting one. <laughs> so it kind of leads into the, yeah. the next thing we want to talk about here for a minute. I mean, you spend a lot of time in discussion with leaders at different mm-hmm. organizations across the country, right? Um, so what are some of the some of the needs and, and gaps out there or even pain points that you're seeing and hearing um, about out there, and, you know, in, in the marketplace or in the non, nonprofit space or whatever? It's, it's a great question, Seth. And when I speak or interact with a group, uh, the first question I often ask is, raise your hand if you've m- ever made a bad hire. And of course, every hand in the room goes up, including my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, here I am in the executive search world, and I've made bad hires. And there are predictable reasons why that happens. But most people that I interact with at every type of organization are currently undergoing pain of a past or current bad hire. Mm-hmm. And yeah. look, it's expensive. To, to hire the wrong person. Uh, you spend an awful lot of time and energy trying to bring them up to speed. Uh, they either didn't have the competencies you thought that they did. They're wrecking your culture because they're not a good fit. They're complaining. And that squeaky wheel gets all the grease rather than uh, you know the mm-hmm. organization moving forward. And so that's a huge pain point is uh, I try to work with people to establish better systems and processes uh, to make sure that they get a, a, a better hire or in, in other times they have great processes, they have great values. They just uh, feel like they're too busy to follow their own, uh, process. And mm-hmm. so that's something that we all are guilty of. Uh, we, we have a process for a reason. Maybe you've seen Enron's, uh, ethics statement. Enron mm-hmm. had the most amazing statement of ethics. It was beautiful. It read like the 10 commandments, just, they never <laughs> bothered to, to do it. <laughs> right. Right. Slight problem with that. Well, we want to get into your. T- yeah. I want to get into the process in a yeah. couple minutes, but before that, I it, it, what you just said about you know the not only the pain, but the, there's a there's a real tangible cost associated with making a bad hire, and I'm not so sure people know about what that dollar figure looks like. And and from my own personal experience, I sort of had this awakening moment. I remember I, I worked for a firm at one point. I'll leave anonymous. Um, 
I was only there about a year and a half and they were pretty upset when I left and, and they had told me, I, and mind you, I was an entry level employee. They told me it costs about 90 grand mm-hmm. to get me up and running in terms of what their total bottom line cost was. And that was just for entry. That it wasn't because I was anything special. I was just an entry level employee. Can you kind of speak to the to the tangible cost and maybe what people aren't necessarily thinking about all the time in terms of what bad hires actually cost yeah, for that, organizations? Yeah, that cost of turnover and then to rehire? Yeah, it, it's a great question. You know, the, the truth is you have to train someone. You have to uh, take time. And, you know, if you've ever been in trainings, they always last a little longer than you really wish they would. Uh, but you, you bring in experts. You... Um, uh, give people equipment. You um, uh, do lots of hard and soft costs to bring them on board. And then the the true cost of a bad employee is much beyond the soft and hard expenses that you're going to ex- uh, experience. But it's the loss of productivity that you hired them for a reason. There, I mean, there was a, a true need for that employee. And if they're not carrying it out, then their department, their organization uh, doesn't uh, match up to to where they should be, and so there's a huge cost associated with that, which we would call an opportunity cost. So, uh, it, like you say, it's a it's a big deal to to make a bad hire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Rich, is there um, is there a ballpark you know percentage of somebody's salary that would be the cost for uh, a turno- for turnover or a bad hire? It's a great question. Um, I. Uh, I would it's at, at least double their salary uh, because of uh, you know you most most bad hires then leave a gap uh, in the organization so therefore yeah. you, you you don't not only do you have someone uh, doing a bad job for a while then you have to go through another uh, a period of time where where they're not contributing mm-hmm. to the organization, so yeah. at least double their salary. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now you were talking earlier about your process and uh, and the process that you'll take your clients through um, through that. Can you walk us through that? Thanks. It's a great question. Um, the um, first thing that we want to do, whether it's a for profit or a non profit client, is get a good sense of what makes their organization work. And honestly, it's my favorite thing about my job because I put on that consultant's hat and I come into uh, different organizations and we do a true 360 uh, assessment of their business. We understand um, what the position is intended to be. We first go to the boss, the hiring manager. Uh, if it's further up in the organization, we'd include the board in that um, in that meeting. And then we'll talk to them and understand what they hope that this position will bring. And we talk to direct reports and we talk to peers. And the mm-hmm. truth is, you, you learn one perspective from the boss, and then you find out what that last person really did when you talk to the direct reports. <laughs> so <laughs> Very true. I, always, I always make sure I talk to the admins because they're the ones that really know how things work. That's true. Um, then we take that information and we compare that to you know the strategic uh, plans that they may have of where they want to be uh, down the road. And we will set out an opportunity profile. That is that uh, list what this person will do, um, what the organization is all about, and some of the core competencies that, that we think would be necessary for someone to fill this role. We talk a little bit as well about the location of the position because um, uh, one of the dirty little secrets of recruiting is that 
about 10% of uh, recruitments fall out because people don't want to relocate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They So we always include that uh, in the opportunity profile and in our direct interviews to ensure that people are actually willing to make this because that's important uh, to hire someone that they actually want to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll go and uh, uh, my partner is often fond of saying that, that Willie Sutton used to rob banks. And they said, well, why in the world do you do that? And he says, well, that's where the money is. <laughs> and so that's important to know where the candidates are is the point. And so we do uh, some research to understand how to source good candidates. Where might this type of individual be? And so we'll uh, do, you know, we have an extensive personal network as well as uh, 50,000 names in our uh, d- database that we've gotten to know over the years. And we'll uh, share that with people that could be a candidate or who might know someone who's a candidate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then uh, out of that process, inevitably, it's the right time for certain people. We'll follow up. We have an extensive screening process that compares those individuals to the profile that's desired. Uh, we're very personal. I like to say that in uh, a recruiting world of Match.com, we're, we're really old school matchmakers. We, mm-hmm. we go on site for our shortlist candidates, interview them, and if possible, uh, their spouse or partner. Um, because we find that those relocation decisions are often more determined by family considerations than others, and we try to get those things in front of them. And Very true. Finally, we'll work with that organization to bring them on site. And one thing I might mention, uh, we've worked with a lot of different organizations with varying processes of interviews, and a common one is you bring in Joe, you have Joe start at the beginning of the day, and he meets with uh, his future boss, then he meets with direct reports, and then he meets people all during the day. And then sometime two weeks later, when everybody finally has a moment, they say, hey, what'd you think of Joe? And most people don't remember Joe. And mm-hmm. one person says, gosh, I really like Joe. And they said, well, you know, I don't really, don't really care. So fine with me. I didn't really think he was a good guy, but I'm not going to argue. <laughs> and they hired Joe. And yeah. the truth is, it's not a very rigorous or systematic way of doing it. No one has the opportunity to compare answers of the same questions. And so we really encourage in those final panel interviews for everyone to be present, Mm -hmm. all the decision makers asking the same questions to all final candidates, and then caucus together, come up with an answer. And so that's how we get our wonderful candidates. Okay. Nice. I mean, it seems to me in a a sense, and I don't don't want to put words in your mouth, but you guys are very much, you know, kind of quarterbacking this process, Mm -hmm. right? Making sure everyone's getting on the same page within the organization so that they can make the best decision for them. Is that, is that a fair? Absolutely. I, I try to make sure that we're assisting our customers, our clients to make uh, outstanding hiring decisions. And the truth is it's not easy to make outstanding hiring decisions. You know, um, we we've seen I think every bad mistake in the book. Sometimes you don't know who you hired. Sometimes uh, they uh, uh, don't portray themselves as they actually are. You know, a friend of mine says that an interview is a meeting between two liars. <laughs> one, I like one, I like that. One person lying about themselves and one person lying about the position. And, yep. and we try to take that out and <laughs> and bring the truth into the process. That's good. I like I, I want to real quickly. I just I want to go back to to two things that you mentioned. Um, you talked about the three hundred and sixty piece. The you know the holistic nature of it. From I mean, from what from what at least and I have seen, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people miss that, especially when they're doing this process internally. And it would also seem to a point, unless you 
are very, uh, I guess, systematic or conscientious about it, it would be hard to do that internally in an objective way. Is that would that be a fair statement to make? Yeah. It, it, look, everybody has office politics, and nobody wants to step on anybody's toes. Um, and so sometimes people don't really give their true opinion. Someone just sort of runs the process and mm-hmm. everybody's thinking, gosh, I can't believe they're going to hire that person. They're not a fit here, but they don't say anything because mm-hmm. they don't want to offend. And uh, one of the values that I see in an external recruiter is the ability to speak the truth. And, you know, a great man once said that you'll know the truth and the truth will make you nervous. <laughs> now it's the truth will make you free. And so I, I don't see sure. myself as in, as in the match. I'm not the golfer, but I'm a caddy. And so I, I try to give accurate information. Hey, that's a, that's a two club win. you're on an uphill lie. I don't mm-hmm. think you're going to be able to make that shot. That's unrealistic. And so we give accurate information from an unbiased third source. And the truth is, uh, candidates will tell us the truth as well. They don't, they don't want to offend a company mm-hmm. and tell them that they think their culture is dysfunctional and sick, but they'll say it to us right? and we can give them, you know, we can give them the skinny on what's going on. And so I find it a very useful process to have a third party mm-hmm. unbiased source that can give both sides the truth. It's very true because the organizations will open up to somebody that's from the outside. I mean, Seth and I have seen that they'll be much more honest with us than they will with anybody else within the organization. So that's a good point. So, and and then real quick, I mean, this might seem like a small thing, uh, but you, you know, you hit on the importance of it, but I want to, I want to kind of look at it from a different angle. When you talk about the relocation thing, Mm -hmm. yes, I mean, getting the people who actually will pony up and relocate, that's important. But I think I'm sure you've seen this. I know we've seen it. You have those people that are career nomads too, right? They'll, they'll go anywhere and, and check it out for a year or two or three. But if you're hiring for a, you know, a senior level position, you don't want to find someone who's has no problem coming, but they also have no problem leaving, leaving. for the next hottest yeah. thing across the country right. in two years. How, do you have a way for filtering that or kind of just gauging that? It's a, it's a great point, Seth. And I think yeah. that uh, the way to address that career nomad is something, a tool that we call the career history. And we, we're of the belief that the best predictor of future performance is past performance. And I, I don't think I've ever gotten a resume from someone that has enough information. And one of the things that we always ask for is a transition statement between jobs. Why did you leave this place to go to that place? And looking at that motivation and, you know, um, perhaps part of, you know, my background as a pastor and my wife's a counselor is, you know, I, I try to understand what makes people tick. Is this person just after the dollar? Um, have they ever made a decision that was not just self-interest? Have they ever, uh, you know, I interviewed a gentleman uh, for a nonprofit role who had left a, a very high paying job to go to a lower paying job that was uh, with a passion that, you know, matched him and his family. He believed in adoptions and, and had children that were adopted, went with an organization that was involved in that. And it told me something about his character because, you know, the truth is people are hired for their hard skills, but they're fired for their lack of soft skills. 
And so we really are looking for character um, as well as competence. And and those values are what enable someone to stay long term, someone that's looking after the needs of others and not just themselves. Mm. That's mm. a good point. Yeah. That's that's really, that really important resonates. stuff that I think a lot of people can tend to miss in that yeah. in that process. Mm-hmm. So that's Definitely. actually kind of a nice a nice pivot into what we want to hit next is, you know, I, I, I think most of the, the pundits and experts out there would say, you know, we've we've recovered from the recession, at least in terms of jobs being more readily available. Um, but there's always going to be trends and challenges when it comes to hiring. So I guess, what are you seeing out there right now? And, and what do leaders need to be open to in order to make great hires stick? It's a great question. Um, you've asked me nothing but great questions. Thanks, Rich. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think one is something I've already mentioned, and that is that uh, you, you need to have a process. And and. Y- no one can afford to delegate the um, future of your organization, which is well, the way I think of talent. You can't delegate it to one or one part of the organization like HR. Uh, it's everybody's job. Uh, talent is the senior leader's most crucial responsibility because if they're not stewarding uh, the culture and bringing on great talent, then you're delegating to people who often their understanding of, of, you know, talent management or talent acquisition is just kind of a process oriented rules oriented compliance sort of system. And with all, you know, respect to my HR colleagues, talent is much more than that. It's finding the right people who not only have the competence to do what is needed today, but what's going to be needed tomorrow. And and the senior leader is really the one who knows that. She's the one who knows the vision. She's the one who really is the steward of the culture of the organization. And um, I, I, working with a group in New York now, and I think I can say their name, and that's okay, hope for New York. But the CEO has been there for quite some time, and and listening to her talk about how she hires, it's like she's a museum curator. She says, I only <laughs> choose these kinds of employees. She just can list it out. She knows exactly who works the best in her organization. You cannot delegate that to a lower-level leader because – they just won't get it in the same way that the senior leader will. And they've yeah. thrived because she knows how to choose good leadership. Good people. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Now, Rich, you were talking about um, working with nonprofit and for-profit. So your firm does a lot of work in the nonprofit space. But what, as you mentioned, like Hope for New York. But for uh, what we've talked about so far, what do you, what fits great with uh, uh, for-profit companies as well? Is that, you know, what you do really fits with the for-profit and nonprofit? Would is that a fair statement? It, it, it does. And I would say that um, people don't change whether they're working uh, for a for-profit or non-profit. Everybody wants to know that their work matters. Um, no, no one said, I you know, went to school and did all this training just so I could be here in this cubicle farm to make my boss more money. No, mm-hmm. no one wants that. Um, they want they want more out of life, whether yeah. they're working for a for-profit or a non-profit. And so the, the for-profits that I've worked with that are making the biggest impact in their community, um, you know, uh, are those that, that do have a compelling mission, that they are adding value, that they they do have a discernible culture that organizations, you know, that employees want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And so you know, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit doesn't mean you can't be on mission. And so those for-profits that I've worked uh, the closest with are leaders who say, 
you know, I don't want this just to be a business. I want this to feel like a family. I, we want to take care of our uh, organ uh, of our uh, employees. And so, bring me someone as a top leader who knows how to take care of other people, who knows how to, um, you know, uh, not just cheat our mm-hmm. uh, our employees out of things that they need. You know, um, and so. Uh, I think that, you know, social uh, entrepreneurship, uh, all these sort of hybrids between profit and nonprofit and low profit corporations, I think that you're seeing that trend because people want more out of work mm-hmm. than, you know, just a paycheck. They, they want to feel like they're doing something that, that, that counts. And so yeah. all of these things, uh, you know, because people look, people want to work for a compassionate human being. Most, you know, almost everybody who leaves a job quits a boss, not a not a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rich, you bring in a, a good point there where so many people will think of it as nonprofit profit, mutually exclusive, but really it is about the culture and whether or not it's a fit for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, and I mean, I think it kind of brings us full circle to what mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier regarding, you exactly. know, most people looking at the church and business as being these mutually exclusive things when there really is a lot of crossover. I mean, the, a lot I think a, a lot of people who... I, I don't know what I'm not I don't want to say ignorance, but it, it's it's don't stop and take time to think that non nonprofits aren't in the business of losing money or right. just giving it away. Uh, they have a mission, too, and they have bottom lines to, to meet as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, right. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And so, for instance, yeah. we've recently done work for Museum of the Bible. It's a one billion dollar project. Um uh, we place Jimmy Mulatto at the seven hundred and fifty million dollar Compassion International, which he, you know, which he leads. Even Prison Fellowship, where we place the CEO uh, James Ackerman, forty million dollar operation. You you still have to have CEO skills. You still have to make good decisions. You still have to plan well. You still have to do those things, whether it's for profit or nonprofit. Um, the added challenge, of course, is that, you know, you have volunteers in your organization. You have to motivate them with something other than a paycheck. And that's mm-hmm. why it can be even harder to run a nonprofit than, than it is a for-profit because that culture and connection to the mission uh, is so important. So critical. That's a great point. So critical. Yep. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. So now let's... Let's pivot for a second and let's let's talk to the aspiring leaders. Um, so some of those, you know, people who they might just be starting in their career. Who knows? Maybe they're middle management, but they they have the dream of of the C-suite again, whether it's in the profit or nonprofit space. What are you know maybe one or two practical things then that they can look at and or maybe steps they can take in their careers to better position themselves for the opportunities that they want? I. I'm so passionate about this question because as it happens, I've become, if you will, a a major league talent scout, but I used to be a minor league manager. And by that, I mean, my job used to be to develop and mentor young leaders, especially when I was in the college world. And I've had the privilege of seeing young leaders who came through my system uh, placed and and grow in some of the larger organizations out there. And uh, one of my mentees was the head of global equipment at Starbucks and was brought up to the uh, organization there in Seattle. Then he was placed out in Manhattan, was in charge of all the Starbucks in Manhattan. Talk about a busy job. That is a busy job. (laughs) And so one of the things that I've learned uh, about uh, young leaders is 
they have to look for mentors. You know, you can say, hey, I'm going to mentor people. But if a younger person doesn't allow you to do that, you're, you're not a mentor. It takes two to tango. And so that younger leader has to say, I want someone who can guide me and lead me uh, into a better future. And so um, they need, I encourage younger leaders to imagine, where could you see yourself? Think about two Mm -hmm. or three career paths that you could see yourself and then find people in that uh, line of work and and just go talk to them. You know, tell them you'll buy them a cup of coffee. Tell them uh, that you, you know you'll you'd love thirty minutes of your of their time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, be bold. Um, get, get experience through those internships, but don't just be satisfied with you know getting somebody's coffee. You know, find times to talk to those people and ask them. You know, how did you get here? What decisions, as you look back, were most key for you? Uh, and and really be assertive because I've found that most of those leaders who are there would love to give back. They just don't. They don't really know how. So I encourage younger leaders to take initiative. And then once you have that spot, once you're sitting there, I think of a young leader who I mentored, who is now the director of outreach at the Dream Center, is one of the youngest leaders they have, but is you know over a couple thousand volunteers. And what he did was he found ways of solving problems rather than ways of complaining. You know, young leaders always see what's wrong. And I remember, you know, I'm not young anymore, Seth. The truth is I'm an old, uh, I'm an old crusty guy now. And But back in the day, I, I could tell you all the things that were wrong with your organization and all the theories and all the books that I had read. And this young guy was so much smarter than me. He just found ways of solving problems that his employer had, and he solved so many problems that they kept putting him in charge of things. And before you know it, as a 24, 25-year-old kid, he was in charge of hundreds of volunteers and really making a difference. So I would say finding that way uh, to solve problems, then people want to have you around. You're actually Mm -hmm. helpful before you ever open your mouth, see how you can serve. Mm. That's some awesome practical advice that uh, not only I think young leaders can can uh, absorb, but maybe even some more the old seasoned ones, like ones as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great, Rich. You have given us some some great ideas uh, about what you do and some tips for possibly future execs. And so you know, it's coming to the time on our show where we ask all of our guests our three favorite questions. So, are you ready? For these questions. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. So, so Rich is a high ca- high capacity leader. We wanted to know what are what are some ways that you um, recharge? How do you get recharged? You're 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 busy. You're placing. You're working. You're traveling. Um, how do you get yourself recharged on a regular basis? It's it's a great question. I would say that if I had a choice to do anything to recharge, it would be. Uh, be near the coast somewhere, take a long walk with with my wife, and just uh, listen to the surf. It's, there's something hypnotic to me about the surf. We live at Virginia Beach, and um, I was just down in Melbourne, Florida, uh, d- doing some things, and and I was listening to that surf, and there's, there's just something that it's like, you know, those old Etch-A-Sketch. It's like turning the Etch-A-Sketch upside down and just shaking it. And it just kind of erases all the bad thoughts and all the bad mm-hmm. memories of the day, and I can just get a clean start. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Nice. <laughs> we all like the beach, too. So, yeah. <laughs> so tell us one life experience that defines who you are today or maybe an interesting fact about yourself that you'd like to tell our audience about. 
I think the defining point in my life, other than when uh, a woman of rare discernment had the uncharacteristic uh, uh, mistake of, of, you know, letting me into her life, that was a pretty important day. <laughs> but uh, how these women of rare discernment ever make such mistakes, I don't know. But other than that day, I would say it was the day that, that you know, I believe that God kind of changed my life around. I was uh, a very ambitious young person who was going to go into the field of law, and I believe I heard a divine calling that changed my life around and put me on a course to serve others rather than myself, and that's a, a, a daily choice and a lifelong pursuit. But there was a day in 1988 when I was in Williamsburg, Virginia, at the College of William & Mary, and that sort of changed everything, and I'm glad it happened. Great. Good. Nice. Very good. Thank you. And then last but not least, if you were to tell a younger you one piece of leadership or career advice, what would it be? Yeah, this is a little bit odd for me, but I would tell myself, um, watch out for dysfunctional leaders who are only in it for themselves. You know, Jesus (laughs) says, you know, watch out for the wolves. And I'll just be, be very direct and say that my experience in both profit and nonprofit is there's some people out there who are only in it for themselves and, and they'll use you up and spit you out. And, um, I, I have a kind of a helpful nature and want to help people out and, and, it's just not very pleasant to be on the receiving end of that. And so I think I'd be a little bit more careful who I hitch my wagon up to and and uh, protect myself a little bit more. But that's just that's my honest answer. Yeah, no, that's, I love it. That's I a love good, it. That's, that, is, that is a good answer. Mm-hmm. And but let me ask you this. I mean, in 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 your in your wisdom, as you say, you're, you know, old and crusty, but I, you're not. We know that. Um how, how do you identify these people? So for for the for that person who's out there who's questioning, uh, you know, what's this person's motive? Any tips there? Yeah, there's an old saying that uh, when people show who the show you who they are, um, believe them. Um, I I think that um, we we try so hard to convince ourselves that everybody's nice and sweet, and maybe it's because my mama taught me that, and to believe the best in people that people will show you their true colors, and um, I you just have to pay attention, and you you have to be careful. Just because you're serving people doesn't mean that you have to expose all of your uh, you know yourself and put yourself in harm's way. And I I think that I believed a gospel of you have to be nice to everyone rather than uh, the truth, which is you do have to serve everyone. Um, but I don't trust m- much of anyone other than God. I have a high view of God and a low view of people sometimes. But uh, I'd say that, uh, you know, when no one's looking, you know, I, I watch how people treat waiters and waitresses. I used to be one. And, um, you know, it just to drive me crazy, people would come from church and they'd pray. And as soon as you see them pray, watch your tip walk away, we used to say. And, you know, when <laughs> when you watch how people treat folks that, that they mm-hmm. think are beneath them, I think it's a, a glimpse into who they are. And so I try to treat everyone from someone who's homeless on the street to a CEO the same way. And I'm sure I have a lot of growth to do. But I, I watch how people treat, quote, the little people because mm-hmm. there really are no little people. Mm-hmm. That's Very good true. stuff. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Excellent. Well, Rich, I wish we had more time. But uh, 
but we're out. You gave us you gave us a lot of good stuff today. I mean, just your insights on uh, you know hiring and and what you're seeing out there in the marketplace, and some good uh, practical advice for people who are in the C-suite and for people who are hoping to get into the C-suite. So, thanks so much for your time, Rich. We're gonna have uh, all the, your your information linked up to our website, leadthis.us. Uh, so for folks out there who want to get in contact with Rich, we'll have. Uh, We'll have his the the Dingman Group website, uh, Dingman Company website. We'll mm-hmm. have uh, other ways to get a hold of of Rich as well. And Rich, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Seth, could I could I tag one thing on it? You bet. Sure. Uh, well, I I botched one answer, and so I I'm a SHRM member, Society of Human Resource Management. So I'll give them a plug and say that SHRM says it could cost up to five times five times a bad hire's annual salary for a bad hire. So there's oh, wow. that that answer. Wow. Right. That's good yeah. stuff. That's good stuff. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. So hire the right people so you don't make the wrong hire. So I mean, hire the right people to help you make the right hires. Exactly. There you go. I love it. Thanks y'all so much. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Bye-bye. We want to connect with you. Check out leadthis.us where you can see previous episodes, get a preview of what's coming, plus access some helpful resources. You can email us at connect at leadthis.us with your questions, comments, or even topics you'd like to see us address in future episodes. Finally, remember to follow us on Twitter at leadthispodcast. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.